Hey guys, how's it going? So I wanted to get into something today which I've been feeling and I think many of you probably have. And that is, it seems that there's this like fog of fear hanging over our entire world right now. That so many of our institutions are being corrupted and there's just a lack of true vision, a lack of courage. And I don't think the virus created that. I think the virus just revealed that. That countries shut down, states shut down, and even churches shut down. That no matter what churches say week in and week out, when the push comes to shove, when it really comes right down to it, they folded just like the rest. And so I don't think it's any surprise that a lot of people are feeling down at the moment, that a lot of people are feeling that the people that they should look up to cannot be trusted. I want to go into an article from CNBC. The headline is 51% of young Americans say they feel down, depressed, or hopeless. In June 2020, the CDC released data that suggests one in four adults aged 18 to 24 have considered suicide. According to the recent poll of 2,513 Americans from 18 to 29, 51% of Americans said that at least several days in the previous two weeks, they felt down, depressed, or hopeless. Young people reported a range of serious mental health symptoms in the Harvard survey. A startling 68% say they have little energy. Think about that. 68% of people who are 18 years old do not have energy. 59% say they have trouble with sleep. 52% say they find little pleasure in doing things. Think about that. This one hit me so hard. More than half of young people find little pleasure in doing anything. 50% have a poor appetite or are overeating. 48% have trouble concentrating. 32% are moving so slowly or are fidgety to the point that others notice. And 28% have had thoughts of self-harm. So I want to go into the reasons that people who are, in theory, the group which should have the most energy, have no energy. And why they feel that there's nothing to live for, that there are no hills left to die on. The first thing that we can do, and I think this is something that applies to people of all age groups, that for many of us we feel a sort of growing corruption in our society. We see churches being corrupted, we see corporations being corrupted, we see the government being corrupted, and these things have always been a part of history, so it's not like they're new. But in many ways it feels like the things which were good about America are now being replaced. And so I want to talk about localizing our life, that pulling back to the things that we can control most and doing something about them, that you know, if we feel that the global economy is becoming less stable, that what we could do is we could pay down our debt. And as that applies to every area of our life, that localizing our life is probably the best way out of anxiety when it comes to a society that feels that it is less stable than it once was. There's a really interesting part in Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, where he spoke about the fact that most very prominent people in business and in culture tend to come from small towns. And that's so interesting because what it indicates is that cities wear down the parts of you that are unique, that they sort of saw off 
they sort of sand down your edges, your eccentricities, the things that make you unique, that they wear those down and put people more in a mold. And I think this is why cities always vote left-wing and rural areas tend to always vote right-wing because people who are in rural areas are more individualist. By necessity, they have to be more individualist because there are less conveniences, there are less things that would allow them to live any other way. But when you live in a small town, you have to do more for yourself. And because you do that, you know who you are more, that you are more of an individual in general. And that in general, if you live in a city, that the conveniences are obvious, but that the downside of the conveniences is that you no longer are doing as many things for yourself, for your own life, for your own thought process. And it is very easy to become more in the mold, to become more generic. So localizing, working for a small business, living in a small town, that as the world becomes more globalized, as it becomes more corporate, as corporations buddy up with the government, as things become more corrupt, you know, in a society like ours, the corporations and the government being the two sources of power, they should basically fight back and forth in a, in a healthy economy, in a healthy world. But that's not what we have today. What we have today is the old idea that if you can't beat them, join them. And if there's anything that everyone can agree upon, it's that the thing corporations care about almost exclusively is money. So when I see them all on TV pretending to care about all these social causes, I know as well as you know, as well as everyone else knows, that it's all just about money and that they are ideologically buddying up with the government because it makes more sense, it makes more dollars to be a friend of the ideologues in Washington than to be their enemy. And that sickens me. And I think it bothers many of us. So what do we do? We localize our efforts. We work for a small business where the owner knows your name, where he might call you on your birthday, where he might have you over at his house for dinner. That these personal connections give us so much meaning. That we pay down our debts. That we sow deep roots into a handful of people around us. You know, I think one of the things, if I could pick one thing that all modern people could do that would improve their happiness, one of the very top things would be that people should meet every one of their neighbors. You should not have someone within walking distance of your house that you don't know. But why is it that none of us know our neighbors? That we all are talking to friends from high school on Facebook in meaningless ways, but the person who's within walking distance, we don't know anything about them. And so that has a cost, and we are starting to feel the cost of not knowing our neighbors, of not feeling like we really have roots anywhere, that we're really sown into any community. So the next thing I want to talk about as it pertains to how do we leave emptiness, how do we leave depression in this world at this time? The first one is continuity. Search out where your beliefs break down and read until you find the answers you need. What would you die for? Is there really a God? If there is a God, why is there so much suffering? If the God of the Bible is the true God, what about those who are born and die in other traditions? What happens to them? Is hell physical or is it not? Is America truly based on nothing but slavery or is it based on principles of individual liberty? Is that why it succeeded? Or is it what they say it is? 
Do I really believe in my political positions or do I just want to fit in? Am I really stuck in my job? Am I really stuck? Or do I just feel stuck? Am I really incapable of finding someone? Or am I just too impatient or too awkward or too selfish or too lazy? Do I really want to be with him or her? Or am I just scared of being alone? Is everything truly meaningless? Or do I just allow myself to believe that because it keeps me from having to do anything? Why can't I feel anything? And is that solely the world's fault? Or is it partially mine? Continuity. Continuity brings peace. When you know what you believe about God, when you know what you believe about family, about marriage, when we conform our will to the will of God, that that brings a huge amount of peace, that it brings a huge amount of meaning. Because it means that life is not about us, and if we fail or if we succeed, that life is not ours to destroy or to create, but that we are a bit player, and that God is the one thing that will live outside of our life, and that we can play a part in what He is doing to love His children. And that that is what gives our life meaning, because we will die shortly, no matter how long we live, it won't be long. Caesar took over the world, but when I think of Caesar, I think of little Caesar. Let's not overplay our hand and think that we have to create our own meaning. God is the only thing that matters, and we must address our beliefs in Him, or our atheism. We must address these huge questions. We must have continuity between us and them if we want to live with any peace. If there's one thing that epitomizes where our culture is in this moment, it's confusion. Look at the people who are at the top of our culture, at the top of our arts especially. Look how visibly on the outside that they are visibly confused, and that the reason they are our icons is because they represent our confusion, that the reason they are on the top of our culture is because they say something true. They externalize something that we as a culture experience. That we as a people are confused about what we live for, about what we die for. And so we naturally elevate icons, pop stars. We naturally elevate people that represent our confusion. The second thing which brings peace, which brings meaning, is connection to other people. When I was single, it was very hard to be in social situations because so many of them seemed geared around people who are not single. But I would force myself into them anyway because I knew that I needed them. There was an old study done by, I think, a guy named B.F. Skinner where he would take newborn babies and put them in these boxes and give them all the things that a baby should need to thrive. Food, water, everything they needed was provided, but they weren't allowed to be touched. And many of them died even though every single thing that they needed was provided, because they were not touched by another human being, many of them died. That we are social creatures, that we must be in contact with other people, and that church is a great way, if you don't know what to do, church is a great way to come together with other people and to experience the communal benefits of being at least once a week, being in a room of people that roughly see the world the way you do. The next thing is curiosity. For some, curiosity is a given, but for many, curiosity is a practice. 
and that I fall in that later category. For many years, I lived so cynical that I almost could not feel anything, that the only time I really felt anything was when I was mocking something, when I was rigorously tearing something down in a scathing, joking way. And for a while, it can be fun to be that guy, but after a while, it wears on you. That the lack of ability to feel anything will come for your throat before anyone else's. And that curiosity is the way out of that. And that curiosity is another form of gratitude. That they are different expressions of the same thing. And so what I would do as a way to try to come out of my cynicism and to come into some form of curiosity would be to just ask people questions. And if I was, let's say I was in church and I felt like, oh, I'm so much smarter than this pastor, blah, blah, blah. He's saying this all wrong. I would look for something that he had that I wanted. And I would listen the best I could to what he was saying based on the fact that he had something that I wanted. That if you're very cynical and you don't know how to be any other way, that every time you talk to someone, even the people you think are stupid, look for something about them that you wish you had and that you will be able to take in a little bit of the goodness of them based on your desire to emulate some aspect of them. And the last thing is control. Is there something you're pretending that is out of your control so that you can avoid dealing with it? Are there things that you pretend that, oh, I could never do anything about that, just so you don't have to do anything about that? And for a moment, you get the relief of not having to deal with it. But it does cost you something. It does hurt you. That we are in a society of consumers, that we spend much more time consuming than creating. No matter what your skill set is or isn't, do what you can to move out of being the critic, of out of being the person on the bench, and into being the person on the field? Is there something that you really wish you could do with your life that you haven't done that you feel like is too far? Are you sure that it's really too far? Or is it just a lot more comfortable to pretend that it's all outside your control? Habit always trumps intention. Look for the habits of the people who do the thing you would like to do and implement those habits. Is there something you're pretending that's outside your control so you can avoid dealing with it? A lot of the times, the things we can control cause us more stress than the things we cannot control. That if we do the things that we could do, then the things which are genuinely outside of our reach become less important. That the more I started to work on this podcast, the less I was bothered by the things that I thought were wrong when I went to church. And that if I were to stop doing this podcast, if I were to stop creating anything, that I would become very critical of anything that I took in, that the people who did create things, that I would just tear them apart, rather than actually create something myself. And that you will find much more purpose in creating something, even a very, very small thing that you might think is dumb, than you will from being a consumer. How can you create rather than consume. And lastly, is there something that is genuinely outside your control that you are pretending you can fix to shortcut your life and conform your life to your expectations, whether it be your own life, 
your spouse and what they do, your children? Is there something that is not in your control that you're pretending you can force through because it will shortcut you to the life you wish you had? In this way, the heart of sanity is the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. To sum all this up, the question is, what could you do to move from the bench to the field? Do you really have to be this depressed? Do you really have to feel this stuck? Or is the problem, at least partially, in your head and not in the world? What could you do to move from being the critic to being the actor? To move from being the person who tears down creation to being the person who creates? You do not need to be creative. You do not need to be able to draw or sing. What could you do, for real, in your own life, with your gifts, the way they are, that would actually allow you to engage in your life? Something that I'm experimenting with is just being on social media a lot less and trying to read more. And again, this may sound like an elaborate way to give myself a pat on the back, but I didn't do it because I was a good person, because I wanted a gold star, or because I think it makes me feel smarter than you and I get to wear a monocle. I'm not above those feelings, but hopefully that's not why I've done it. That The reason I've done it is because I've had so little peace, so little meaning at various times throughout my life, that the pain of doing these things wrong encourages me to change, forces me to change. That recently I've realized that I've seen things which should stir beauty. I've seen sunsets. I've seen just various things that I, when I saw them, I thought, you know what, I should feel something, but I don't. And what is it that is keeping me from being able to experience what is good about my actual life? One way that I've gauged where I'm at mentally is how much I enjoy my cup of coffee in the morning. That if I really enjoy that as a little beautiful thing in every day, as a little bit of grace in every morning, that I know that I'm doing well mentally, but that if I rush through it and I'm anxious about all the things that are going to go wrong today, that that is a great indicator of where my head is at. And part of the reason that we can't feel the good things that do pass by us in a day is because our ability to take in the real world is gone. Because the real world, the real beauty, the real sweet things that are happening in my life and in your life are much slower than we want them to be. In this book that John Eldridge wrote called Get Your Life Back, he talked about how email made writing a letter faster, and texting made email faster, and that emojis made texting faster, and that in theory we should have more leisure time than we've ever had than any person in history because we have more convenience, because we spend less time on these things that used to take forever. But that in reality, we are more trapped than those previous generations, that we are more enslaved, that we are less free than those previous people. Because our habits are different. That if 99 times out of 100 every single day, you do the things as quickly, as efficiently, as rushed as possible, then at the end of the day, when you should, in theory, do that one thing that you could truly enjoy for an hour straight, that when you truly did have a moment of time that you should feel enjoyment, you should feel relaxation, when you should feel peace, 
when you should feel leisure, that you are not capable of it. Because habit always trumps intention. And that if you have trained yourself to do things as quickly as possible, to manipulate everything to happen as fast as possible, and that if you have drained the momentary beauty of every single aspect of life in order that we could do it quicker and quicker and quicker, that when it finally comes time for you to relax, to finally do something that should bring you enjoyment, that you will not feel it. Because we have trained ourselves out of feeling it. Because our habit says rush, regardless of what our intention says we want to do. Another reason I've tried to start reading more is that books are one of very few things that have survived through time. That if for no other reason, if you were to replace looking at social media with reading a book, that that will bring you a feeling of groundedness by the very form that books have survived the last hundred years in a way that no matter what you see on Facebook, you know that in five minutes it will be replaced by something else, by some other momentary stimulation. And that the form impacts our psychology in ways we do not necessarily even notice. That if you're looking at something that you know you'll forget, that you know will be replaced five seconds from now, that that gives a sort of cheapness to life. It gives a sort of disposable uh, orientation towards you. That if you are exploiting the ups and downs of other people every moment and throwing it away a second later, that you know that you are in that game and that people are doing that to you. But when you slow down your mind, when you take in something that someone poured over for years and someone tried to write this book over a series of years and they weighed over every word, that that reminds you that they put meaning into that piece and that you are also meaningful and that your life has that weight, that your experiences, that your ups and downs, that your life has weight too. That you are not cheap, that you are not disposable, that you have meaning. And this all starts with God. And it ends with practicing curiosity, with practicing gratitude, with practicing meaning. I love you guys. I hope this has been of some use to you. And uh, as we go through this journey together of trying to walk out of emptiness, trying to walk out of cynicism, that, uh, that if nothing else, that I am just a uh, traveling companion for you. I hope you have a great week.